Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Nancy K. Miller. She is the author of Breathless, An American Girl in Paris, which talks about her life in Paris during the 1960s. It's published by Seal Press, and I'm delighted to have you on the show today, Nancy. Thank you for having me. One of the first things that I want to get into is something that you say in the beginning of the memoir, which is that you've been haunted by the girl in this book for most of your life. And I want to unpack that a little bit, because that's such an arresting image. Well, I went to Paris after I graduated from college, and I was 20, and I spent six years living there. So when I was young, it was a very big piece of my quote-unquote adult life, and it affected the rest of my life in ways that I never really fully understood until I decided to tackle the memoir. For one thing, it put me out of sync with people my age, say, in graduate school. So it put me out of sync with other people in my cohort. So it created a strange lag for me. And also because I had the sense that I had lived something that was different from the lives of most of the people I knew, but that was kind of unshareable. I tried to tell the story in little tiny bits in different essays I wrote over the years, but it took me a long time to be able to understand the shape of it. Elsewhere in that section, you talk about how the story that you tell yourself over the years is one that you come to believe is your actual life. And the memoir is in part a realization that it's like, oh, you know, the story that I've been telling myself all this time is not the full story. I had a very odd experience that I don't know what happens to, must happen to some memoirists, which is to say I had a decent amount of documentation. So my parents had saved all the letters that I had written to them in that six-year period. So the first time I looked at them was after their death. So I looked at them in the early 1990s. And I was very shocked to see this, what I was telling them because I, by then, had a very different memory of my time there. If you read those letters, it sounded as though I was happy, happy all the time. Everything was absolutely great. But that was not how I remembered it. So that when I finally sat down with the photo, with the letters, but also the photographs, of which I had a decent number, I began to really try to see what had happened over those years. And I, I think I understand now more than when I was closer to the time, which doesn't seem plausible, but in fact it is. And in addition to the documentary element, that correspondence with your parents really points to sort of a key element of the impetus for the whole story, which is that, you know, what took you to Paris or in the first place was getting away from your parents. Yes. There was, there was several paradoxes involved in this. If you look back on your life, most people have one or two things they regret in a very powerful way, and one of them for me was living at home when I went to college. I, mean, I, I really wanted to go, to, way to go away to school, but my parents, I, w I always say, conned me into living at home with the promise that they would support me for a year in Paris after graduation. I was desperate to get away from them when I graduated, and I went to Paris, and they thought I would stay for a year because I was doing a master's program. Within months of my being there, they were asking me when I was going to come back. And little by little, I realized I had, was not going to come back, or I wasn't going to come back right away, and I was going to do anything I could to stay. 
But these ties are complicated. So even though there were oceans, the fact that I had, I had made this deal with my parents that I would write to them every week because they were subsidizing my first year. And it was no letter, no money. <laughs> so I wrote the letters. And then I became a kind of habit. And they were always pressing me, you know, when are you coming home? Where are you doing this? And, and so on. Telegrams, you know, how are you if I didn't write? And so on. So I just decided it was easier to write every week than to have them asking. That was one way in which I was tethered to them. And the other thing was that they had traveled to Europe and they had many friends in Paris. They had asked me to look them up, which I did. And so I ended up having some of my relationships mediated by my parents. And it became harder and harder for me to really make a clean break, which I don't think I ever did. Yeah, you write about the tension between wanting to be, as you put it, someone not my parents' daughter. And, you know, the more that you tried not to be your parents' daughter, it was almost sort of like that Br'er Rabbit sort of situation where you, you know, you inevitably become more your parents' daughter in the process. That's, it was true. It was true. Well, it worked in two funny ways. One was that my parents, I mean, I grew up in the 1950s, and my parents, like many parents in the 1950s, parents of girls, were obsessed with the idea of my being a virgin. It was really something on the level of an obsession and a whole sort of discourse about what girls could do, couldn't do, what was dangerous, what was not dangerous, what would happen to you if you did X, Y, Z with a boy, well, girls and boys then. By the time I got to Paris, I was really determined that the way I was not going to be their daughter was to have a free sex life. I just, I really thought it was going to give me agency, as we say now. I thought I would become free and free of them if I could, if I had the secret life. It didn't quite work out that way. I mean, one of the first encounters that you describe soon after your arrival, you ended up having a, a doubt. <laughs> I'm going to say a dalliance, but yeah. the word that, the word that your, 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 your parents' friend used is a passade, which yes, is more sort right. of a passing thing. Right, right. Well, of course, I didn't even know that word at the time, but yes, well, it was a little, I, I, it was perverse, I think, for me. This man, this person was, of an age, he was between my age and my parents' age, so he was definitely way older than I was, but he wasn't my parents. And I suppose he was perverse too, right? I mean, because after all, he was supposed to be great friends with my, with my parents, and here he is seducing their daughter. And I told my parents quite a lot about my life, but I never told them that. And I often wanted to because I always felt I had a trump card when we were having horrible fights to but I, I never did. And it was one of those, as I say, these one of those gestures that I hoped would free me, but in fact tied me, even if I was being tied, retied through secrets. Wrapped up with that self-definition of wanting to liberate yourself through agency is an image that connects back to the very title of the memoir, Breathless, which is that Gene Seberg in Godard's Breathless was not a role model, but well, maybe a role model that you were using as you approached your life in Paris. Right. I mean, we didn't, of course, it's funny now, because all the language we have, we didn't have then. We didn't, no one talked about role models at that point. But I, I don't know whether anyone can have this experience today, but when I saw the Nouvelle Vague movies, there were several of them, Abu de Souffle, Breathless, Hiroshima, Mon Amour, Les Cousins, various movies that I reference in the book. 
I experienced them as a tremendous shock because it just made me see that this world that I was living in, this little, as my husband calls it, Manhattan Provincial, that I absolutely had no idea, really, of what could go on between people and what did go on between people. And so the fact that Jean Seberg was a American in this film, she played an American girl, she was American, and B, she was also from New York, and C, she had sort of writerly ambitions, made her somebody very desirable. And a lot of women I know, by the way, including my roommate in Paris, cut their hair super short to look like Jean Seberg. Women used to have much longer hair, and suddenly with Jean Seberg, with this t you know kind of pixie haircut, people, women just cut their hair super sh to look like Jean Seberg. But she seemed to be the emblem of a certain kind of freedom. And Godard, in the film, Godard makes her somewhat mysterious and hard to read. And therefore, it was even more interesting, because you didn't really understand her motivations a lot of the time. And ironically, at the end of the film, he also sort of makes her the butt of the joke. <laughs> and I say this ironically because part of the Breathless, the memoirs, entire arc is, is that for all your efforts to be free and autonomous and independent, the universe kind of conspires against you. And in some ways, your own mistakes are complicit in simply ensnaring you deeper in the trap that you think you're, you're escaping. No, it's absolutely true. Um, I'm glad that you can see that because it took me a long time to understand that. That was not, when I first told, when I first thought about the book, I was going to call it Dangerous Relations after the 18th century novel, Les Liaisons Dangereuses. And my idea was, I was fascinated by this female character, the Marquise de Merteuil, who was this very was autonomous woman who sexually conquered men and was kind of a feminist figure. Uh, she has a bad ending. I should have really paid a little more attention mm -hmm. to that. This is the Glenn Close um, <laughs> character in the, in the movie. Well, she, in the French movie, she's, yes, kind of. Well, the yeah. French, yeah. In the, Vadim made a movie of it in uh, 1960. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, Merteuil was Jeanne Moreau. Mm -hmm. And the, her partner, Valmont, was Gérard Philippe. So it was one of those things where there was just something really kind of irresistible about the, the fantasy that all these people had around brains and sex. Because it wasn't just, it was never just sex qua sex. It really, it was much more a power game. For you in Paris, that power game, which was also being played against your parents, as we've talked about, it brings you to the brink of marriage and then into marriage. Yes. <laughs> Getting married was not something I especially wanted to do or that I thought I wanted to do, even though I almost had a flirtation with one person and then I actually married the other one, the second one. But it's this, I, 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 I sensed that it was very hard to sustain this fantasy, really, of independence. I started having a sense that I needed a partner, and I encountered this person who whom I married, who was much older than I was, had lived in Paris for a long time, was an expat, and seemed to me to be very sophisticated in literary ways. In our first meeting, we have an argument about a line of poetry and who wrote it and so on. And I, because he was older, I also thought that he would be kind of a protection against my parents because they would have trouble bullying him. As you know, that is not quite what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's fascinating in the reading of this, you know, watching you 
almost unconsciously, although, I mean, there's, it's half conscious, half unconsciously, sabotage your own marriage with the, the affair with the handyman. Okay, let me, I know this might seem impossible, okay. but I had never been in therapy. I didn't know mm -hmm. anyone in therapy. I, I'd almost say I didn't know I had an unconscious. And the concept of self-sabotage was not available to me. Mm -hmm. What I think um, happened was because I really was not onto myself, I just kept going along with a certain amount of unhappiness and frustration with no language for it. And I also had no vision because I had so invested in the idea that I was going to remain in Paris and remain in this situation that I couldn't see a way out. I, I didn't even know how I would approach the idea of there being a problem, say, in my marriage, because my ex was not someone you could even talk to, uh, talk with about these things, because he didn't have an unconscious either, as far as I could tell. Plus, I didn't also understand, because I didn't know anything about alcoholism at the time, but I'm pretty sure he was an alcoholic, and that a lot of the things about him that were strange really had to do with that, but it was, was something I just... People mentioned it to me, but I didn't understand it. The fact that you had not been in therapy until then is really crucial in that later in the story, when you've hit what we might sort of describe as the first bottom, I mean, we think it's the bottom, but there's another bottom <laughs> yes, right. for people who, who want to discover that. You go home to New York and you go to therapy for the first time. I mean, there's a comic element to how quickly he gets you. And you, you're right here. It's like it was embarrassing to have someone you didn't know seem to know all about you. Right off the bat. I mean, he just pretty much like late. And, and of course, your initial impulse is to reject the narrative. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Because A, he was authoritarian. B, he was telling me a lot of things I didn't want to hear. Like, I should come home. That I didn't love my husband. Even that I hadn't actually gotten to that point. I knew I was very unhappy, but I didn't really. I would never have said to myself, I do not love this person. When he, I told him my history, more or less. And when he started in on this. Don't you see a pattern here? And I was like, oh, a pattern? <laughs> no, because I was fixated on each individual episode. I didn't really see that there was a... I, I did not see that there was a pattern. And you're like, what, is this what therapy is supposed to do? Make me feel ashamed and stupid? <laughs> right, right, which is totally how I felt. And what made it even worse was, because uh, I was staying with my parents for this two-week Easter vacation, and my mother was thrilled with the idea that the shrink had said that the best solution would be for me to come home, live with my parents, and see him three times a week. <laughs> the only thing she minded was the three times a week. But it was as though somebody was confirming that there was something really wrong with me that had to be fixed. We're going to skip over a lot of, of this okay. because people should discover the story for themselves. But you know the idea towards the end that you know, that there are some elements of truth to the narrative that he comes up with, but that the key lesson for you, the key discovery, is less that, or is about, you know, all these years that you spent trying to be somebody other than what you were. Instead, you, uh, on the on the break of the 70s, you're like, now it's time to go out and do things. Right. I mean, I condensed a little bit at the end because <laughs> it was not an overnight conversion. I had, in particular, one horrible transitional year when I came back from Paris I think I must say in the book that I I didn't really know what to do with myself but and the only thing I was qualified to do at that point was to teach French in high school and 
I totally hated that. And I hated it all the more so was what my parents had wanted me to do in the first place because I had been a French major. I, I just thought I was so miserable. I was out of touch with everybody. I was out of sync with everybody. I had been away for six years. Everything was changing in the culture so rapidly. And it was just before 68 in Paris and 68 in, in, at Columbia, where I ultimately went. So there was a sense that the world was really changing. And what was I going to, and who was I in it when I, I was just going to be this miserable person in my room taking Valium to, to tune out the misery. But there was enough, I needed a cultural change. I don't think I could have come to it alone. And so I feel sort of grateful to feminism and it kind of pains me sometimes when people look back and they only see about feminism all these ridiculous cliches and they really miss what it really meant for generations of women who had zero expectations for themselves and the, suddenly the possibility that, oh, well, you, whoa, you could do this, you could do that, you could do the other thing. And that was just, trans, that was transformational for me. Right. And even if you crash and burn as, as you did. Yes, I continue to do. <laughs> you had the freedom to do it. Yes. Yeah. And that was, that was really surprising. And if I ever write another memoir, which I don't know, I would like to write about the 70s because I think it's a very misunderstood decade. And for women, it was a very powerful, most male cultural critics say, oh, 70s, nothing happened in the 70s. They're interested in the 60s, they're interested in the 80s, they're not interested in the 70s. But for women, the 70s was amazing. And I just became a person I never, ever imagined I could be. Yeah, I've actually written about that. I wrote a book in 2005 about 70s Hollywood, oh. the, the basic thesis of which was that, as you say, like everybody's fascinated with the 60s because that's when this stuff is fresh and radical. But in the 70s, it all trickles down to Main Street. And that's where, for me, things get really interesting. When the counterculture, in effect, becomes the culture. Right. I have a colleague, he's no longer a colleague, it's uh, Luke Menand who teaches at Harvard, but um, he's written about this, and one of our, it's not exactly quarrels, but one of his ideas about the history of film, I don't know what you would think, is that first, in the in the Nouvelle Vague, especially you can see it in a movie like Breathless with the Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart figure playing such an important role, that the French are looking to the what they call the Céline Noir, these um, detective novels, Chandler, McCain, and so on. Then, the way he sees it, so the French look at the Americans, they do the, the Nouvelle Vague, and then Bonnie and Clyde comes and sort of Americanizes, sort of re-Americanizes that Nouvelle Vague. And I think that's kind of, this Franco-American relationship, I think, is quite complicated. But I did, so I'm, I can't wait to read your book, actually. They may well have it in the, in the library. Oh, I don't know about our library, <laughs> but I mean, I will look for it. You had mentioned at the beginning that the letters and the photographs that you had were invaluable tools in writing this memoir. And I know that you teach memoir here at CUNY. Yes. And I'm wondering, does a prolonged period of studying and teaching memoir make it any easier to write one? <laughs> Not really, but as you know, there's lots of discussions about memoir, about the genre, and there have been a lot of fake memoirs, as you know. So in terms of memoir theory, there is one belief that comes from a French theorist, Philippe Lejeune, about what is the fine, the, the essence that no matter what else is at the heart of autobiography, of memoir. And he calls it the autobiographical pact. The word pact is important. And he talks about a pact between the writer and the reader to tell the truth. 
the desire to tell the truth. And he has some other formal constraints like the name of the person and the name of the author and so on. A lot of people have challenged it, but when I was writing the memoir, I realized that even if I sometimes had to omit things or change things slightly, I was still really wanting to tell the story as truthfully as I could, that it, that the truth had a value to me, which is, I think, why I said what I said in, in, the, in the prologue, because, and another easy way to think about it, because of these horrible scandals that there have been, is when you go into a bookstore, you can go to fiction or nonfiction, and when you're choosing nonfiction, you really are choosing to be in the presence of a desire for the truth. That, to me, is something I have found in the best writing of the memoirs that I've taught. And I think the, the other thing I've learned in, um, in teaching, and I try to make this part of it, is make my book in some ways reflect that, is there has to be a certain amount of stylization even if that's your, even if what you're desperately trying to do is tell a specific story. And that paradoxically, experimental, this is not very experimental, but more experimental writing can also be a way to get to the truth that isn't sort of, it's not mimetic in an obvious way. And one of the things that I do here, that I actually learned to do in my last book, was I have very short chapters and it partly came because I realized that my life was very episodic. I moved, I think I lived in six different places over the six years. And then there were all these people. So I really felt that the form, that if I had these short chapters, that would kind of give a sense of, A, how you remember things, which is usually in these little vignette moments, and B, that it was not a long meditation on my life, but it was these strong moments. And as you say, you can do that on a spectrum. While, for example, Breathless is, as you say, episodic, there is a sense of connective tissue or overarching narrative between those episodes. They're, they're not completely... They're not random. Yeah, they're not random. They're not <laughs> fragmentary. They're episodes in a clear narrative. In the early stages, I went through a lot of struggles with this book, trying to find what the form would be, actually. A writer I know who is, um, has different tastes for mine, said to me, above all, do not become anything. And for a long time, I, was, I, was, I, I believed him, and I believed that. And then I had this shapeless, shapeless mess, until I thought, that is not true. And that when I teach memoir, we're, of course, fascinated by the arc of, and that memoir is really so much about self-transformation, that it would be ridiculous really not to become anyone or to be the same in the beginning at the end as you were in the beginning because a that's not true in life and b it's not a very satisfying story but there was a pitfall that i tried to avoid which was on the whole a sort of american tendency in memoir to have it be redemptive and completely transformational you know which is true of certain kinds of narratives about i i was an addict i'm not an addict kind of thing I wanted, I don't know if I succeeded, but I wanted the reader to feel that there was a cost that did not get erased to the quote-unquote happy end. And that the happy end, or on the whole, better than what it was before. That you made it out alive. Yeah. But you were, but, but you were changed. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely, definitely. And it was like, I don't recommend this as a, as a way of growing up. 
And I don't even know whether young people live this way anymore. They all, my students seem so sophisticated. I, I can't believe they actually ever was, were as innocent as I was. Who are some of the memoirs or, or what are some of the memoirs that you find yourself returning to in the course of teaching these, these students about memoirs? Right. I almost always start a course with Virginia Woolf with her book that's called Moments of Being and the part in it called Sketch of the Past because it's, because she's Virginia Woolf and she's an amazing writer, and because she talks a lot about how memory turns into writing. And she actually coins a word. This is 1939-40, just before her death. She coins a word that now is the word that people use for talking about memoir, well, academics, I shouldn't say people, life writing. In other words, that's the word that has sort of taken over. So not making distinctions between each individual form, whether it's diary or memoir or biography and so on. So I always start with her. I also always teach Roland Barthes because I want the students to see how far, like, because he lays bare a lot of the process of telling about the self without actually telling a story. And that's actually true of Wolf too. So those are sort of, I think those are kind of great touchstones to kind of surprise people about what they think autobiography might be. I think the single most brilliant 20th century autobiography is uh, Maxine Han Kingston, Woman Warrior. It is an extraordinary book, and that sort of proves what I was saying to you before about how an experimental form, the power of an experimental form. It's an extraordinary book and uh, one I almost always teach. But now I've become very enamored of graphic memoir. There have been so many brilliant ones in the last decade that I almost always now teach an, uh, a graphic memoir like Funhouse, the Alison Bechtel. And, and I find that it's important because then I also like to teach visual um, autobiographies that have visual components with photographs to try to get at the complexities of self-representation. So those are the books that I think I prefer. I did a reading of Blue Stockings the other day, other night, with writers who had been in an anthology called Goodbye to All That, also published by Seal. And of course, it's the sentence from uh, Joan Didion's essay, Goodbye to All That. And I didn't know Joan Didion's essay in the beginning. And once I read it, I thought, whoa, she wrote my memoir in, in one sentence. It's about her, Joan Didion leaving New York after, it, it, she spent her 20s in New York from California and then at the end decided she had to leave. And she has this incredible sentence where she says, it's clear how things begin, I'm a slight paraphrase, it's clear how things begin, it's less clear when they start to end. Really, that did haunt me. And you used the word in the beginning. How I could see myself arriving. I could see all the things about the beginning. And I could never pinpoint exactly when it all began, began to unravel, you know, which expressed itself in the affair. But obvious, something had to be happening before that. But I couldn't ever put my finger on it. I more or less I have a better idea now, but I, I didn't feel it at all. I think that distinction between the memoir as a story of becoming something and a story of, as you just put it, coming into being. I mean, it, it might just be a semantic difference, but becoming and coming into being are or, or feel like two very different kinds of processes. And coming into being is a is a very interesting story. No, I agree yeah. with that. I agree with that. And I think it's, it, it's hard to express 
And I think writing, which, I mean, I didn't think of myself as a writer until I went to graduate school. And then I thought of myself as an academic writer. It took a long time before I actually shed that. And that, I think, is the ultimate coming into being for me. And that, I think, if I had to say one a surprise or one aspect of my life that I would not have predicted when I was 20 would be becoming a writer and never guessing that that would be so important to me and that that would be the being that I really needed, actually, without knowing it. And one of the results of that process has been Breathless, An American Girl in Paris. I have been talking with Nancy K. Miller about it, and you have been listening to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I thank you for listening to this episode. If you are subscribed in iTunes, thank you. If you are not subscribed in iTunes yet, you can subscribe through iTunes. Once there, perhaps you can rate or review the podcast, and it'll make it easier for other people to find it as well. I hope you will join me again for another episode soon.